Over the past three weeks together, you've been looking at what it means to be a gospel-centered church. And over the past week, I've been reading Christoph's sermon so that I'm up to speed with to where you're at and the thinking that you've been working through. A few weeks ago, you started looking as mission at the center, how mission is at the center of everything we do as the Christian church. It's where everything else comes from. Sharing the good news of Jesus should be, needs to be, and is our core activity. Then moving on from mission at the center, looking at mission for everyone, how we are all called, and I love this little phrase, to show and tell the gospel with the gifts and abilities that we have been given. No one is exempt. No one has a little card that allows them to stand aside from being involved in mission because mission is for every member, every part of the body of Christ, as each of us uses our gifts and abilities which differ greatly, but yet each given by God and relevant for the work and ministry that he has called us to. So mission is for everyone. Then last week, mission has no walls. Thinking outside of what is a regular Sunday morning service, thinking outside what is our normal practices during the week here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. So mission has no walls. It's about living godly lives in everything that we do, in home, in the place of work, in the place of study, in the places where we socialize and those we socialize with. Mission has no walls. And today we move on to think about mission without fear. So as we do, let's take a moment and let's pray. Let's pray that we will know God's help in understanding what he requires of us. Asking for help to get over what are the things that hinder us from sharing the gospel, the fears that are within us. So let's come and let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have been reminded in the words that we have sung that you reign on high over all this earth. We ask that you will reign over every thought, over every word. We ask that our lives will reflect you in this world. Father, we pray that you will reign in us. And may it be by your power, not by what we think it should be, but allowing you the freedom to reign completely in us. Teach us. Help us to get over the things that we fear most when it comes to talking about the gospel message. And may we trust completely in you for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. What frightens you most about sharing the gospel message? If I were to ask you now to get up from where you're sitting to go out through the door and onto the streets of Ballyhackamore and go to the first person that you saw, saw to tell them about Jesus, what would be the one thing that possibly for many would be stopping you from doing that? What would be the fear? Would you be afraid that you'd be laughed at? That people would think the message that we have, a gospel message that saves lives, is something that is completely far removed 
from the society that we know that they will laugh at us, thinking it is irrelevant and that it has no place or purpose? Are we frightened of being humiliated? We don't like being put down, and so people would be very quick to just throw us off and take us and treat us as irrelevant and, and belittle us because of this message. Would we be afraid of being questioned? We could meet someone who would have further questions, and it's okay whenever we know the script in our head and what we're going to say, but whenever they come back to us and we don't know how to respond, is that what has the fear in us? Or perhaps it's just that scenario where we're afraid of being seen as the weirdo, that fundamentalist person who doesn't see life from any other aspect but their own And they're so dogmatic that they're right in absolutely everything, so they are weird in today's society. Is that how you're afraid of being seen? And maybe it goes beyond Ballyhackamore and into the week, and the people that we live with and socialize with. Are we afraid that we're going to be put out from our social groups, that we're going to be excluded from what is normal society, that we will be seen as different will be marked as someone as having a secret agenda, so therefore people won't stay as close to us as they once was because they're afraid of what we might say and do? Or does it boil down to a feeling of inadequacy? We can't say things like other people do. Their words flow out so eloquently. I could never present the gospel message So we have a feeling of inadequacy in sharing this wonderful truth that Jesus died and rose again so that many would come to know him and enter into a life that is filled with hope of where he will lead them. What are our fears when it comes to mission and to gospel work? Before we go in to think about the fear and how we overcome that, we need to look at what the reality of the situation is. What it's like today in the streets that we live in, the places where we work, and indeed our families as they have changed from one generation to the next and indeed change within the generations. The reality is that however we do mission, it is done without compromise. So easily we see, indeed in the past week or so, Uh, Within political parties, there seems to be compromise. Parties that were of one position or another in years gone by have now seemed to get closer to what we know as center ground. And they're not just as easy to distinguish between each other except for perhaps the color of tie that they wear at a podium. They're compromising. Society compromises easily so that everything is politically correct. But whenever we come to think about gospel work and the message that we have, we cannot, we cannot compromise on its truth and its meaning. Whenever I was growing up, for me, gospel work and ministry happened in two ways. It was only ever done in a mission or a meeting, and it was only ever done by one person, the evangelist, the minister, the one who was set aside to specifically preach the gospel That was how it was done. It could not happen in any other shape or form. We know that as the generations have gone on, as the years have gone on, 
A society has changed even within the past 10 years. That way of gospel presentation isn't as effective as it once was. People aren't quick to come in to our meetings to learn about Jesus as they once were. It takes us relationally, individually, to talk and to share life with people so that they will see Jesus. This isn't a compromise because we're not compromising on what is the essence of the gospel, telling people that they need Jesus Christ. But what we are doing is making this generation having greater access to the gospel message. The message does not change, although the method used may. We cannot compromise what we know. We cannot compromise what we hold dear to ourselves. But the way in which we came to Christ may not be a way that is recognizable or accessible to the generation that is around us. Let me tell you something that Steve Timmis and Tim Chester say in giving an example of this and the reality of the situation. In one UK city of some 600,000, there are almost certainly less than 10,000 evangelicals. If each believer is reaching 10 people with the gospel, and that is a generous estimate, it still leaves half a million people in that city unreached. And what about the world? It's estimated that a staggering 1.3 billion still haven't heard the gospel. We do have a responsibility for these, don't we? For the thousands upon thousands in our towns and cities and the billion or so in the world. That's the reality. That even if we were to do, even if each of us were to reach 10 people with the gospel, there would be still so many without the knowledge of Christ. And this is the reality. This is what we are faced with, even here in Belfast. Sometimes we look at culture and we look at society and we find it hard to recognize what it was whenever we were going up or whenever we were at certain stages in life. But gospel without compromise means that we need to hit this generation head on with what are the time-old truths. Yes, presented in a way that is relevant and accessible, but yet still the message that won our hearts and called us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So as we start thinking about gospel without fear, I go again to a story told by Timus and Chester. Peter trudged home after the meeting, head down, hands deep in his pockets. It had seemed such a great idea, a drop-in cafe for the young people who regularly hung around the church building. It would give them an alternative to the streets and lead to gospel opportunities. He had imagined holding Bible studies, planning weekends away, discipleship courses. But for the first few weeks, no one had come, except kids whose parents went to the church. Then a group had come together just to be disruptive. A window had been broken and some money stolen. Now the church leaders had called a halt. Secretly, Peter was relieved. Next time he had a big idea, he 
he would keep his big mouth shut. Is this how we feel? In our experiences of being involved in congregations, whether it be here or other congregations that we have known, have we gone with an idea of how to reach the people within our buildings and outside in the community? Have we come with ideas about how to reach them with the gospel, but our programs and our ideas have been stopped in the tracks of what is church life? Are the practical issues far too great for us to deal with, or is the investment in resources not worth the few who will only benefit from our activities? How do we judge what is a success and what is a failure? Is it all about numbers? And if we're honest, probably whenever we think of how we run things, it's always how many people were there. And so we judge our success on the number of people who came in rather than what work was done. Let's take a look at Matthew 25 on page 994, a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, but again reminds us of our responsibility in taking the gospel message to those around us. So we start in verse 14 with a man who is going away. And he gives out what is his. And in rereading this uh, this past week, this struck me again that everything that he gives is his. And it is always referred to as his. He never gives it into the ownership of the servants. He is always expecting that this will return to him. So he's going away for a while. He gathers his servants, and we know of three of them, To one he gives five talents, to one he gives two talents, and to one he gives one talent. Each talent is worth about 75 pounds in weight of a precious metal. He gave what was his. Each was given with what they could deal with. The master was sensible. He was intelligent. He wasn't going to give a a huge amount to someone whom he didn't really trust. So he gave each what they could be responsible with. The first two, they went, they did whatever they did, and they doubled it. Five became ten, two became four. But the third, the third out of fear of knowing his master, took that talent, put it in the ground and waited for the master to return. And the day came where the master returned to get what was his, what he had entrusted and loaned so that it would come back to him. The two servants who have doubled what they were given, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant, who did absolutely nothing with what he was entrusted with is called a wicked servant and who is thrown away into punishment because he did not do what the master had wanted. This third servant had an inability to reap what the master had wanted. He could not handle what was entrusted to him. As we think of what this parable means to us today, We have been entrusted 
We've been entrusted with things that are the master's. They're not ours. Things that have been given to us by our Father God. That may be gifts and talents. The ability to be able to host people. The ability to play musical instruments. The ability to listen and to care. The abilities that we know are the gifts and talents within the church. It may be the possessions that we have that we can readily make available to those around us in need. The money that's in our bank accounts, the things that are the physical possessions. And most importantly, what we have been given is the message of the gospel. The truth that we claim, the truth that we know changes lives and gives hope for an eternity in heaven. But what we have been given is not our own. There's something within each of us. I have a number of friends who would love to be able to play a musical instrument and who have went to lessons and have not been able to play whatever they've gone to learn. There's nothing within them naturally that enables them to play an instrument. I would love to play the drums, but my natural rhythm doesn't allow me to, and it would be the greatest noise you would ever hear. We are each like that. We can either do things or we can't. We're either good at sport or not. We're good at music or not. We're good at cooking and baking or not. We're good at standing up and talking. And we're good at sitting down and listening. We each have very talents given by God. Yes, harnessed and developed in the world, but ultimately given by God. The possessions, if you are in the tradition of giving thanks for food. We don't take food for granted when we pray and thank God for them. Our possessions, I think we realize, are not things that are just given to us by what we earn, but God has put us in places where we can get what we have. And as for the gospel message, not one of us here wrote it. Not one of us here made it possible. Each thing we have is given by God. From this story in Matthew 25, the concept of success comes from those talents being used. The two servants who did what they could, doubled what they had, were seen as the success. And there's even a glimmer of what was the potential success in the third. If only he had given it to the bankers and the master could then have got the interest on it. If only he had been so lazy as just to give it to someone else to look after. That was worth more than putting it in the ground and doing nothing with it. So from Scripture's perspective, success is seen as doing something with what we have been given. Doing something with the talents, the gifts, and abilities that we have. Failure is measured as sitting back doing nothing. Let's think about what we've done here in Kirkpatrick Memorial over the past number of months. World Cup screenings, Soul Space, Holiday Bible Club, Converse, Golden Years, activities that were opened up to those of us within our congregation family and those whom we know within the community around us. 
But how do we judge the success of these activities? Because if we were to look at some of them and say, well, let's count how many people came through the door, we would be looking at them and stroking off some that we'll never do again. Because number-wise, they weren't successful. Whereas others who got in 50 or 60 people, well, that's seen as a good success. We got people in. But let's forget about numbers. And let's look at the Bible's mark for how we judge success and failure. The fact that our buildings were open to the community around us. The fact that people gave up of their time to come and facilitate our events started conversations with people who had never darkened our doors or it had been many years since they'd ever been in a church building. Conversations that are continuing as people are meeting for coffee two or three months after these events. People showing and telling the gospel message through contact with our World Cup screenings, Soul Space, parents meeting each other at Holiday Bible Club, teenagers meeting our own teenagers who profess faith in Jesus Christ, talking at school and in other activities, golden years, our older members of our congregation sharing, showing, and telling Jesus. Does it mean that we automatically run the whole program again? No, because there has to be a way up of what is positive and negative. Because as well as looking at what the Bible sees as as success and failure, we also have to think, well, what does it mean to do it again? What does it mean to share the gospel? Not just to rule out what we're comfortable with, but how do we move on? How do we move forward? Do some things have to go so that other things can start? Gospel without fear means we go and we do. Gospel without fear means we try. It may fail, but what we learn in doing it alone will be worth more than we can ever imagine as we work on this path of figuring out what evangelism and gospel ministry looks like to the community around us. And this has become more and more real to me. My home congregation in South Armagh, a population, a very small population, who would be evangelical Christian, wanted to embrace on a mission done in the good old traditional way. So we held a two-week gospel mission in our church halls, and we sent out door-to-door distribution over 2,500 leaflets that were specifically designed for our town into the local community. We got very few from our community into our gospel meetings We had one or two who responded out of the two and a half, three thousand people who received these these, uh, little leaflets and literature. But what it did for us as a church was far greater than what we expected. Because if we were to look at it in terms of, well, did people come to know Christ from our community? Not that we are aware of. But what happened within our congregation, friendships established, People healed and restored from things that they needed forgiveness for. Together we came as a congregation to know what it meant to fully depend on God, to worship Him, and to trust in Him alone. Whatever we organize, 
whether it be here in this congregation or in other organizations that we're engaged with. Don't be afraid to try. Let's not be afraid to try the ideas that we have. Whenever I first went to work in Malawi, we were told to dream in black and white because they'd only had television for three or four years. Now they're saying dream in technicolor because they've got on to many what is a color television. So let's dream in high definition or 3D or whatever the latest piece of technology is that we can think of. Let's be creative. Let's think of what it's going to be like to dream these wonderful dreams about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. And if they fail, they fail. But we will learn. And we will know Jesus more because we have trusted in him. And we will move on with him. And if they succeed with biblical success in seeing our own talents nurtured and grown and ultimately seeing souls won and nurtured for Christ, then let's not be afraid to go forward with a gospel-centered mission into this church and community. So what are we afraid of when it comes to doing evangelism? Because I would guess, as you, as you have listened to what I've been saying, you're thinking, yes, as a congregation, that's, that's fine. We can do that. We can do this together. And maybe we're already starting to think of a wonderful picture of what that looks like. But it seems to me that what is at the root of the fear is on the personal level. It's individual. And I think it boils down to two things. Firstly, we feel we are not equipped. We feel inadequate to do what we need to do to share the message of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 25, we are told that we have been given what we need. God gives each of us what we are capable to use, what we are able to use. So therefore, each thing, each gift, each ability that we have is given by him for his use because he has entrusted us with it. And at its most basic level, evangelism and gospel work is all about relationship. And throughout the history of Scripture, we can see that we were made to be relational people. I imagine the majority of people here love it whenever they get invited out for a cup of coffee or to be invited around for a meal. We are relational people who like to interact and to live and to work with people. We like to share stories we like to see families grow and, and come together. We like to be able to do things for other people. We are relational people. And evangelism is relational. We show and tell Jesus. And again, I've come to see over the years that there's a great burden lifted of us. Because it's not us who does the saving. We're not the ones who save people and usher them into the kingdom. That's God's job. And he's quite happy to do that. Which takes the burden and the responsibility of us, feeling that we can't do it. Because evangelism in 2010 going into 2011 looks like relationship. It looks like showing and telling the message of Jesus. So we feel that we are not equipped. But I believe Scripture tells us, yes, we are, because God gives us what we need 
to share his message. The second thing that I think still on a personal level keeps us back from sharing the gospel message is our reputations. So we put our reputation as something that is precious to us. We focus on us and who we are and seen by others rather than who God is. We consider ourselves to be of greater worth than the gospel message that God sends at the highest of prices. For God, it was the highest price to pay because he sent his one and only son to bear the punishment of the world. When you think about that, our task seems very small indeed. It doesn't seem to cost us much, but yet we still seem to put our reputation in front of what is God's. Our thinking of evangelism needs to shift. It needs to shift from being about what we do and who we are in the view of society and think about who God is and what God achieves through gospel work and ministry. In finishing, Ezekiel 33 gives us a wonderful picture of what God expects of us. Ezekiel was that prophet. He was the lunatic. He was the one who was seen as this weirdo by his society, but yet they couldn't get enough of him. They waited outside his house to see what he was going to do next because he was just so off the wall. But everything he did, he did because God had told him to do it. And there's a shift comes in what Ezekiel is to do in Ezekiel 33. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their men to make them their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. This message of the watchman is to warn his countrymen of what is going to happen. Ezekiel up to this date has been telling people about what the punishment and exile that is going to come. But from this point on, Ezekiel's message is one of hope to say there is forgiveness. We know the same message. We know the message that is there because it's true in us. The message is forgiveness. A gospel message that says to people, God loves God forgives, and God saves. If a watchman does his job well, he is honored because he has warned the people of what is about to happen. If the people don't listen, that is their responsibility, but the watchman has done what he needs to do. If the watchman doesn't do his job, the people don't know what to do and they perish and the watchman who has been given that responsibility will be punished and judged and condemned 
for not doing what he was supposed to do. If we sound the gospel warning and people do not respond, we will be heartbroken. We may have egg on our faces because of the efforts that we've gone to to preach the gospel. Our reputation may plummet, but that is better than failing to sound the warning or to sound it so cautiously that no one can hear it. Gospel without fear means that the way ahead we know is eternity. And we must go with the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We have the task to warn the generations. And our success or failure will be whether we do something to show and tell Jesus or to sit back and do nothing. It is better to take gospel initiatives that fail than fail to take gospel initiatives. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've talked a lot about gospel but spent very little time thinking about what it means for us. So we thank you for it. We thank you that the gospel message is the salvation of our souls. It's an eternity with you, a hope that brings us through this life and into your glory when this life is over. We thank you for the greatness that that is. We thank you for the peace that it gives us. We thank you for the warmth that we know in your love. We thank you for the care we know that is poured on us, our families, our friends, and our gospel communities. Father, as we hold the gospel message so clear and so dear in our lives, may we never walk away from our responsibility of sounding the horn of telling the message of what is to come. Give us the courage and the opportunities. Take away our fear. May we trust in you alone so that we can do what you have called us to do, to worship you and to share that wonderful message with those around us. Father, take us. Make us available so that we can share the wonders of your salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name.